Recently, I saw a show produced by National Geographic about people who are preparing for the, for the end of the world or for end of the world-like scenarios. Uh, one couple was preparing for a polar shift where the north and south poles change places. Uh, uh, another man was preparing for a catastrophic earthquake in California. And a young woman in Texas was preparing for a global oil shortage. They're preparing for the end of the world or end of the world-like scenarios. What do you think of this? Does, does talk of the end of the world or end of the world-like scenarios alarm you? Or, or, do they, or do they seem silly to you? Do you have the sense that the world is, has just gone on and it will simply continue to keep going on as it has? Simply because the end of the world has not come yet does not mean that it will not come. In fact, the Bible teaches that the end of the world as we know it is coming and that Jesus Christ's return is imminent. Jesus Christ teaches that when he returns, he will eternally, finally, and decisively judge the living and the dead and bring about the new heavens and the new earth. Does that excite you? Or does that seem strange that that idea would excite you? Do you actually look forward to the end? Jesus, he, he taught his disciples that the end of the world will come. And, and he instructed them to be prepared for the end. This is what we will be thinking about this morning from Matthew chapters 24 and 25. And if I had to summarize what these two chapters are about in a single sentence, in one sentence, it would be this. Jesus is the king who will return in glory. That's what these chapters are about. Jesus is the king who will return in glory. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, uh, that's on page 829. 829 of the Bibles provided. I've also provided an, an outline of the sermon there in the bulletin that I hope will help you as we make our way through these two chapters. Now, before I, I offer a summary of the context out of which our passage arrives, let me offer a word of explanation and a word of invitation. Um, first, a word of explanation. This, uh, Matthew chapters 24 and 25, this is one of the more, perhaps even the most complex passages in all of Matthew's gospel. Uh, many brothers and sisters in Christ will take a different perspective on this passage than I do. Uh, in some of what I say, I may be wrong. And I trust that God will patiently teach me in glory. And in fact, I look forward to that sermon, and I'm sure it will be much longer than this one. Um, now, about that word of invitation. If you have questions about anything I say, then I'm happy to invite you to find me at the door afterwards and discuss uh, the passage in the sermon. Love to do that. I might not be able to answer all of your questions, but I'd be happy to give it a shot. Now, let's think about the context out of which this teaching from Jesus arises. We're getting closer and closer to the end of Matthew's gospel. And it's hardly surprising that as we get closer to the end, Jesus starts talking about the end. Jesus, he begins to speak of the end. Matthew's gospel has been all about how Jesus is the Messiah and King that the Old Testament promised and pointed forward to. 
Even these chapters, which contain Jesus' teaching about the end of the world as we know it, make that clear. Jesus describes himself as the king who will sit on a throne and judge the whole world. He will judge everyone who has ever lived. He will judge you and he will judge me. Now, one of the most important things that we can do in thinking through Jesus' very careful teaching on the end is to get ourselves properly oriented to this teaching. Jesus' teaching on the end doesn't arise out of a vacuum. Several very important events have transpired that lead up to this teaching. And so we need to momentarily think back to last week's study in Matthew's Gospel. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem to the empty praise of the people. He entered as a king, but he was identified as a mere prophet. He, he made his way to the temple where he had found an empty religion. The people of the city had exchanged faithful prayer for financial profit. Jesus even cursed a fig tree to prove to his disciples that the people of Israel were cursed for their lack of hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then the religious leaders, they, they started questioning Jesus' authority. And their questions actually served to undermine their own authority. The religious leaders' questioning of Jesus ended with a question by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 45. The religious leaders' inability to, and unwillingness really, to answer Jesus' question revealed that they were not fit for their office as teachers. Jesus then publicly identified them as hypocrites who would face God's judgment by saying in Matthew chapter 23, verse 36, Truly, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In other words, God's judgment would come upon this generation that Jesus was speaking to. Jesus openly laments this situation. It brings him no pleasure that punishment is coming. He laments the situation and he leaves the temple. And this is where our passage begins. So let's turn now and consider our first point together. Setting the scene for the discourse. Setting the scene for the discourse. After Jesus laments the punishment that is coming, he leaves the temple. Read Matthew 24 verses 1 to 3 with me. Matthew 24 verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the close of the age. This conversation between Jesus and his disciples frames the rest of Jesus' teaching in these two chapters. And in order to properly understand these chapters, this must be crystal clear in our minds. The disciples, they point out the buildings of the temple and Jesus tells them that the temple would be destroyed. And notice that the temple is not merely vacated, but utterly ruined. Not one stone will be left on the other. This prediction by Jesus looked forward to the day when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. In 66 or 67 AD, the Jewish people rose up in rebellion against the Romans, but it wasn't until 70 AD that the Romans fully and finally put down that rebellion in destroying 
the temple walls were literally pulled down. Jesus, it was Jesus' statement about the destruction of the temple that prompted the disciples to ask him about this in private there in verse 3. And it was the disciples' question that prompted the discourse that follows in these two chapters, commonly called the Olivet Discourse, because Jesus is seated on the Mount of Olives. I think that we should notice a few things about the disciples' questions here. They almost seem to combine the destruction of the temple and the close of the age itself, the return of Jesus. Now that's not entirely surprising, for the end of the Jewish religion as they know it would certainly be such a cataclysmic event, one which would lead anyone to ask, is this the end? It was a beautiful temple. The thought that it would be torn down was amazing. How could that be? So what I want you to understand is that the disciples' question, it ties together the destruction of the temple with the close of the age. Not only that, but the disciples, they want a sign. They want to be able to know when these things will take place. And these are the matters that Jesus addresses. The destruction of the temple and the sign of his return. Jesus' teaching on these subjects over the next two chapters makes clear that one, the destruction of the temple will occur along with other tribulations that signal the end is near. And two, while these are signs that the end is near, there is no single definitive sign which signals the very end. No, no one knows the date nor the hour. And therefore the disciples must prepare for the end and persevere to the end in the midst of these various signs and tribulations. That is what I think these two chapters are about as a whole. Let's now turn to consider our second point. Tribulation and the terrible tribulation. Tribulation and the terrible tribulation. As we do, read Matthew chapter 2. Let's pick back up in verse 3 and read through verse 14. Matthew, sorry, Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One of the things that I so appreciate about Jesus' teaching here is his explicit care and concern for his disciples there in verse 4. Jesus very forthrightly warns his disciples that many will come in his name. They will identify themselves as the Christ, and sadly, they will lead many astray. Jesus tells his disciples this because he loves them. 
And he does not want them to be led astray. He wants them to persevere in the faith. He wants them to face the coming challenges with comfort, with the comfort and certainty of his care for them. And we know that he loves us too. For he ensured that his teaching here was preserved so that we too might not be led astray. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be led astray. He doesn't want them to be alarmed. Wars and rumors of wars can certainly strike fear into the hearts of anyone. But Jesus' disciples and God's people are not to be alarmed. Rather, God's people are to trust that he is in control of history. Even when famines devastate peoples and earthquakes shake the ground, God's people are to trust in him. And as strange as it may sound, Jesus says in verse 6 that these things must take place. That's the language of necessity. It has to happen. Brothers and sisters, do not be alarmed. Jesus, he didn't want you to be alarmed. And so I'm almost certain that the alarmists are not the people that you want to be listening to in the last days. Even though Jesus mentioned some alarming things in this teaching, he did it so that we would know and be prepared, clear-headed, and faithful, even in the face of fierce tribulations. All of these events, the, the coming of false Christs, wars, earthquakes, and famines are not the end, Jesus says, but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, the, the mothers in our congregation probably understand Jesus' analogy in verse 8 here the best. The contractions of childbirth lead to the birth of a child, but they are not in and of themselves the birth of a child. These things are just the beginning of birth pains, and Jesus tells his disciples that more pain still lay ahead. More contractions are yet to come. Jesus tells his disciples that they will be delivered up to tribulation and even put to death. Jesus tells his disciples that they will be hated by everyone, just as he was hated. Jesus even predicts that many will fall away, be led astray, and that the love of many will grow cold before the last day. In some ways, these verses characterize the period between Christ's first coming and his second. I mean, in our own lifetime, think about it, haven't we heard of false Christs in our own lifetime. Do you remember the name David Koresh? Didn't he claim to be a false Christ? Didn't he lead people astray? We've all seen wars in our lifetime, and we're continually hearing of rumors of wars. There are famines in some corners of the globe. There are even earthquakes. The D.C. area experienced one just a few years ago. While all of these events took place within the lifetime of the disciples, testified to in the New Testament, that doesn't mean they don't still continue to occur. Any woman who has been through labor can tell you that contractions can go on for a long, long time. It seems like they go on for too long, don't they? That is the situation we find ourselves in. The labor pains occurred in the disciples' time, and they have continued on down through history. Jesus tells his disciples about these difficulties so that while they are enduring this difficulty, they may remember his words, be strengthened to endure to the end, and so be saved. 
And notice the bright light at the end of the tunnel. Notice in verses 13 and 14 that Jesus tells his disciples that even in the face of this pain and persecution, there is perseverance and proclamation. Christians will endure to the end and be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. Even in the midst of this trouble, the disciples and we can take comfort for the Holy Spirit, be with His people, giving them the grace to persevere and proclaim God's gospel. God is bigger and more powerful than any of the threatening forces we see in verses 1 to 14. And I love how the word will is a part of verse 14. There's divine determination in that word. The gospel will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. In the face of robust persecution, the gospel will go forward. Indeed, all of this persecution and tribulation did not stop and will not stop the advance of the gospel. The disciples obeyed Jesus Christ and took the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we too should heed the command of our Savior to follow in the way of the apostles to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we know from the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that the force of that command to keep proclaiming the gospel continues until Christ returns. These trials and tribulations took place within the lifetime of the disciples and they take place within our lifetime too. These are the kinds of tribulations that mark the whole period between Christ's first and second comings. Still, there was something else that needed to take place within the disciples' lifetime. Something specific had to take place. Something that they had asked Jesus about and that Jesus had predicted. Jerusalem had to fall. That's what verses 15 to 28 are about. Read Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 28. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days... Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And in those days, if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, here he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In verse 15, we read the curious phrase, the abomination of desolation. And here Jesus is referring to uh, Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Jesus says that the reader of Daniel's prophecy 
should understand that what is about to take place in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? I'm not really sure. Uh, but Luke's gospel seems to intimate that it at least involves armies that surrounded Jerusalem. You can find that in Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Some have tried to specifically identify it as setting up the Roman standard in the temple over the altar. I think that's certainly possible, even uh, very likely the answer. But again, we simply can't be sure. Jesus' point seems to be this. When you see the armies approaching, flee. Flee and do not look back. Christians in the, in, the, in the first century, Christians apparently remembered Jesus' exhortation to flee to the mountains because when the Roman armies appeared outside the city of Jerusalem between 66 and 68 AD, they fled. Christians left in multitudes. And as a result of their obedience to Jesus' commands, the Christians living in Jerusalem were spared this terrible tribulation. Now before commenting on the fierceness of this tribulation, I want you to notice that Jesus' statement in verse 21 it actually does not preclude future tribulations. Jesus simply makes the point that this distress is an unequaled or, or unparalleled distress. What is amazing is that God shortened this tribulation. Apparently, in the end of what took place in uh, 70 AD, over one million Jews were killed or died because of the circumstances of the war with Rome. Don Carson points out that while there have been greater numbers of deaths in other circumstances, there has never been so high a percentage of a great city's population so thoroughly and painfully exterminated and enslaved as during the fall of Jerusalem. Those days in Jerusalem came to an end. God was merciful. He cut them short. In verses 23 and 24, Jesus returns to his initial warning in verses 4 and 5 to be on guard against false Christs. This reveals that some of the troubles that characterize the lives of Christians before Jerusalem's destruction will also characterize their lives after that event. Tribulations will occur before this great tribulation, and tribulations will occur after too. Verse 24 serves as a comfort to those who are followers of Jesus. It should be a comfort for Christians to know that it is impossible for the elect to be led astray. False Christs may try to lead them astray, but it will be impossible for them to do so. Christian, take comfort. The Lord will not lose you. While the Lord will not let His children be deceived and led astray, He still urges them to be on guard. Being on guard through the power of the Holy Spirit is how the Lord keeps His children from being led astray. Uh, another thing that God uses to keep His children from being led astray is the very, this very teaching from Jesus. Read verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus has told His disciples in advance of all of these things that were to take place. He told them so that they would be prepared. And this statement in verse 25 actually corresponds to the disciples' initial question earlier on. In verses 3 and 4. Remember, they had asked Jesus to tell them when these things will be. Jesus has answered part of their question. He's told them about the signs, the, the labor pains that will indicate that the end is coming. But he hasn't spoken about the very end yet. Which is also part of their question. 
In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 to 28, Jesus has described events that precede the end. Jesus has described general tribulations that all disciples throughout the ages will face. And he has described a unique tribulation in Jerusalem. The tearing down of the temple that will and did take place within the lifetime of his disciples. The days leading up to the end of the age are marked by tribulation both before and after Jerusalem's destruction. But the very end of the age itself is marked by Christ's return. Which will be so clear that it's it's lightning flashing in the sky. You don't need anyone to point out to you. It's it's bright. It's there. You can see it. It's so clear that you can see it. You, You know that it's come because the vultures have gathered. They're there. It's come. It's happened. This is what we want to think about in our next point. The Redeemer who returns for the redeemed. The Redeemer who returns for the redeemed. Read Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Jesus' language of coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory is an unmistakable reference to his return. He needs to go up to heaven in order to Come back down from heaven. Jesus is here talking about his return. And at one level, this should not be surprising to us because the disciples raised the question about Jesus' return. Now this immediately also raises a question for us about the beginning of verse 29. It is somewhat natural to understand the phrase in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, as referring to Jerusalem's destruction. But don't forget that in verses 4 through 14, Jesus told the disciples that they would be facing tribulation. He even used that word there in verse 9. The kind of tribulation that they would face is the kind of tribulation that has marked all of Christian history. What's more, in verse 21, we noted that the great tribulation in Jerusalem did not preclude future tribulations. And in fact, in verses 21 to 22, we saw more false Christs who were trying to lead people astray after Jerusalem's destruction. Less severe tribulation would and did follow that great tribulation in Jerusalem. Much like the tribulation described in verses 4 through 14. If Jesus intended us to understand that his return would come after the tribulation of the destruction of Jerusalem, then I think he would have likely described it in the same terms of verse 20 by saying immediately after the great tribulation. But he didn't. He simply said immediately after the tribulation of those days. The tribulation of those days in verse 29 seems to refer to the whole period of tribulation between Jesus' first and second coming, which again are filled with the kinds of tribulations that we saw in verses 4 through 14 and which we see in our own lifetime. Friends, brothers and sisters, we we are in those days. We are in those days between Christ's first coming and his second. We are in the days of tribulation and it is only a matter of time before Jesus returns. The majestic and poetic language of verses 29 to 31 find their sources in the Old Testament prophets of Joel and Isaiah, Ezekiel and Amos. That's why we read that passage from Joel 
earlier in the service. The language that Jesus is using here is language of the end. When Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming on a cloud in great power and glory, he's talking about his return. Jesus would talk about his return in terms of glory at the end of chapter 25, the end of our passage. The Apostle Paul would speak of Christ's return in much the same language in 1 Thessalonians 4. What is clear is that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. The whole earth will know that he has come. And that's another reason why Christians shouldn't be led astray by people saying, hey, hey, the Messiah is over here. The return of Christ will be visible, according to verse 30. So visible that no one will need one of those giant foam fingers pointing, you know, he's, he's over here. No, we'll all know it. Not only will it be visible, it will also be physical. He is described as coming. There's no other way to, to come to a party than to actually go, physically be there. Jesus' return is public, it's visible, and it's physical. For the Christian, Jesus' return is precious because we realize what he is coming to do. Look in verse 31 again. He is coming to gather his elect from all over the globe. Dear Christian, the, the one who loved you to the point of death is coming for you. He's not ashamed of you. He loves you. And he wants the entire world to know that you are his. Don't you long for his return? If there's coming a day when your Lord and Savior is going to proclaim to the world that you are his and that day is coming. Will you not proclaim to the world that he is yours? Christian, live this day in light of that day. Christian, do not deny him. Proclaim him. Friend, if, if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to come to Jesus Christ in faith today. He is coming back. Is he coming back for you? We have all, we've all sinned against God. We've rebelled against him and endeavored to live our own way rather than his way. And because of our sin, we deserve to face God's punishment when Jesus returns. We deserve to be those people who mourn because of the punishment we deserve. But friend, what you need to know is that Jesus came the first time in order to die for sinners like you and me. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience that we have not lived, and he died on the cross, bearing the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in him. And three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead. He vindicated him, and in doing so, he proved to all of us that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners is acceptable in God's sight. Friend, Jesus was and is the Redeemer. And He came to redeem and rescue sinners from punishment. Friend, turn from your sins and put your faith in Him today so that when He returns, He will return for you to gather you to His side with joy and delight. And if you want to know more about what it means to be redeemed by Jesus, and please talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came with this morning. Find me at the door after the service. There's nothing more important you can think about 
than what it means to be redeemed by Jesus and to anxiously await his return. In many ways, these verses, verses 29 to 31, answered the disciples' question about what would be the sign of Jesus' coming. Jesus, he does not quite give a sign. Instead, he simply says that he will return and you'll know it when you see it. The implication is then that they should be watching, waiting, and expecting him to return at any point. In this lesson, Jesus drives home in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 44. In these verses, Jesus drives home the point that the timing of his return is unknown, but that this we actually know. We know that we don't know when he's coming. We know that the hour of his return is unknown. So let's consider the next point, the unknown that we know. Read Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 35. Matthew 24, verses 32 to 35. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. At the very gates, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In Matthew 21, Jesus used a fig tree to teach his disciples about the emptiness of the religion in Jerusalem and the temple. Here in Matthew 24, Jesus teaches his disciples another lesson by using a fig tree again. Jesus reminds his disciples about something they already knew. It was commonly known amongst those in Palestine that when fig trees had begun to put out their leaves, summer was approaching. The leaves of the fig tree would be the initial signs that summer was approaching. But while it meant that summer was approaching, it did not mean that summer had arrived. So in verse 33, when Jesus tells his disciples that when they see these things taking place, I think he's talking about the events that precede the end, found in verses 4 to 28 of Matthew 24, but not the end itself. It doesn't make sense to understand Jesus' second coming to be a part of these things taking place, because at that point he's not near He's already arrived. In verses 34 and 35, Jesus goes a step further. He tells his disciples that they'll see all of the events of verses 24, sorry, verses 4 to 28 come to pass before this generation dies. As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus uses that phrase, this generation, Jesus is talking about those who are alive and listening to him at that time. Furthermore, every time the Gospel of Matthew uses that phrase, this generation, it is in reference to that present contemporary generation. Any other interpretation would frankly strain credulity, I think. What all of this amounts to is the imminence of Jesus' return. Jesus can return at any moment. And if all of these events have taken place, friends, then Jesus is near. He is at the very gates. And as soon as the Father opens those gates, He will be here. Jesus, He makes the astonishing claim that His words will not pass away. Only one who is eternal can make such a claim of his words being eternal. Now what is truly baffling, however, is what Jesus says next. He has just proclaimed the eternality of his words and in doing so, highlighted his own divinity that he's actually God, God the Son. But look at what he says next in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 to 44. But concerning that day 
and hour. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have, left, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now in contrast to Jesus' knowledge of all of those things that are to take place, the one thing that Jesus doesn't know is when his own return will be. That is for the Father and the Father alone to know. And this statement has puzzled many, and that is completely understandable. Uh, I'm not sure I've fully wrapped my mind around it. The New Testament clearly teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Even in, the, even in this passage, we've already seen that Jesus' word is, is eternal, which implies, again, something about his divine nature. Jesus' limitation of knowledge on the date of his return, however, is part of what theologians call his humiliation. His humiliation. When Jesus gave up his throne in heaven and humbled himself, coming to earth as a substitute for sinners, he humbled himself and refused to exercise some of his divine attributes. It seems clear that Jesus temporarily refused to exercise the divine attribute of omniscience. After all, part of his mission was to perfectly trust God the Father on behalf of sinners. And laying aside omniscience for a time would allow him to truly identify with them in their own calling to trust in God. One commentator had pointed out that this statement actually adds to Jesus' emphasis on, on being prepared for, the, for his return. He wrote, quote, his purpose, Jesus' purpose, was not to define the theological limits of his theological knowledge, but to indicate that vigilance, not calculation, is required. If Jesus told his disciples today, that's all they're going to be doing till the end. Jesus has already done the calculation for us. We're in the days just before his return, and his return is imminent. So, we're to be ready for his return. We should absolutely not, we should not, Listen to those who are trying to calculate and predict Christ's return. They don't know. They don't know. And they may actually be leading people astray. Don't listen to them and don't be led astray. What we do know is that he will return. And he will come at an unexpected time. Did the people in Noah's day expect a flood? No. They were surprised and caught in their unbelief. And, and the vignettes of the two men in a field and two women at a mill, with one of them taken, expresses the surprising and final separation that will take place between those who have trusted in Christ and those who have not. That is when Jesus leans in to his disciples and his teaching and he repeats the truth that since the disciples do not know on what day he is returning, that they should stay awake. 
Jesus is not saying they should never physically sleep, but that they should, in faith, be alert. For he could return at any moment. What Jesus really wants his disciples to be focused on is living faithfully until he does return. This is what he spends the last portion of his discourse focusing on. And if you, if you look at it kind of in chunks, okay, so he spends the first half of his discourse on these two things, tribulation and his return. He spends the second half focusing on how you can be prepared, how you are to be prepared for his return. Notice the weight that he puts on that. This is just as important. So beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verses, verse 45, and stretching through the end of chapter 25, Jesus over and over again stresses that, that while his disciples, while they await his return, his disciples will be marked by faith and faithfulness. This is the final point that we want to consider together this morning. Faith and faithfulness until he returns. Read Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. With me, Matthew chapter 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servant, and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is in some ways terrifying teaching. But the message is clear. Jesus' disciples and we are to be busy about the master's business, doing what he commands. And to keep on doing what he commands, what the master commands. Our master, he may be delayed in his return, but that does not mean that we may desist in doing his will. Faithfulness, or excuse me, faithlessness, means sitting on your hands and doing nothing. It may even be seen in abusing those whom the master has called you to care for and falling into the world's vaunted pleasures. Faithlessness is self-serving. Faithfulness means serving the master and his household. And this contrast between faithlessness and faithfulness is seen in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. These, these ten virgins, they were to take their lamp and, and, and lamps and to prepare and go and meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom was delayed and, and they fell asleep. And then suddenly there was a cry waking them up. The bridegroom was returning and they all went out to meet him. But five of them were foolish. They failed to prepare for the bridegroom's return by bringing flasks of oil for their lamps. They were unprepared. They were not only faithless, they were also foolish. It is foolish not to prepare and not to labor in faithfulness when Christ has told us that he will come. They were foolish. So Jesus again tells his disciples to watch and, and to be faithful to the end. This is the path of wisdom. Another contrast between faithlessness and faithfulness 
is set forward in the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. The master, he entrusts resources and treasure to servants in his house, and he departs. He goes on a journey. It was his property that they were to put to work. That is what faithfulness to the master looked like. Two faithful servants, two of the servants, put his treasure to work and multiplied it. And upon his return, he joyfully received them and rewarded them by a warm welcome. One servant, however, was faithless. In fear, he did nothing with the treasure that was entrusted to him. Like the wicked servant at the end of chapter 24, the five foolish virgins in verse 12, and this servant was cast into eternal punishment for his wickedness and faithlessness. Brothers and sisters, until Christ returns, we are to care for those in the master's house. We are to love and serve one another. Until Christ returns, we are to let our light shine before men and not let it go out or hide it under a bushel. We are to be faithful with the treasure of the gospel, not burying it in the ground, but putting it to work by burying it in our own hearts and by burying it in the hearts of men and women and children and seeing it multiplied for the glory of God. Are you ready for His return? Are you prepared? Are you telling others about Christ and helping them to prepare for His return? We are to do this because He will sit on His throne and judge the faithful and the faithless. Read of that judgment. Read Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with them, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil. And his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to the least 
of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These verses, they parallel well Jesus teaching on the faithful servant who cares for those of the master's household. In Matthew 24, verses 45 to 51, the righteous faithfully served God, and this is seen in the service of his people. In John's gospel, Jesus said that all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Our love for each other shows that we belong to the God who first loved us. However, those who do not show love to God's people show that they do not love God. What is inescapably plain is that this judgment is unavoidable. The wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go away to eternal life. As Thomas Watson has said, eternity to the godly is like a day that has no sunset. Eternity to the wicked is like a night that has no sunrise. And this is where I want us to conclude. I want us to conclude by reflecting on the joy that awaits those who trust in Christ. Through his teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus has made plain that he is the king who will return in glory. He will return to judge, as we just read. But he will also return to gather his people for himself and to himself. And this gathering of God's people is what we actually prepare for each Sunday as we gather here. And it is what we should be preparing for each day that the Lord gives us on earth. Each day we delight in God's grace toward us. And one day soon, we will delight in the fullness of his glory. In the words of one Puritan minister, grace is glory militant and glory is grace triumphant. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come in glory and power for we want to see you and be with you. Let's pray together.